welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm joined at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, by Dr. Emlyn Koster. Dr. Koster is the museum director, and he is also a geologist. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. Great to be with you. So can you tell us a little bit about your role as museum director here at the Museum of Natural Sciences? Fundamentally, a museum director is a leader, but everybody should consider themselves a leader at their level in the organization. But this kind of leader, that of being the director of the museum, is to be between those who work with you and for you and those to whom you report. So you are managing a the scientists, and then you're also managing the collections, and you're also managing the people who, like you said, that you report to and to whom you report, I should say. But uh, so you're the face of the museum. Well, a face may be a particularly prominent face because I represent the museum, um, both uh, by being a spokesperson for it, being a, a, the principal direction setter for it, and when and as necessary, being a coach for it within and uh, a change agent, a, uh, uh, trying to encourage the organization, which is not difficult here at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, to move with the times and to be more and more useful in ways that we can. Wonderful, wonderful. Did you always want to be a museum director? Did you envision yourself as a museum director as a child? Coming to North Carolina in 2013 was a shift to my fourth museum leadership position. I've done this now for almost 30 years. Wonderful. I moved to the museum field from uh, being a researcher and a university professor. And I had the opportunity back in the mid-80s to be invited to apply for the leadership, for the director of a new natural history museum. I was doing research in the areas that the museum was interested in in a UNESCO World Heritage Site, both in Alberta and in China, in the Gobi Desert. Yeah. And uh, it was sort of the right, the right, the great opportunity at the right time and the right place for, for someone who was interested to make a move into the museum field. And I found it very, very rewarding. Oh, that's fantastic. And we've been meeting with a lot of different scientists here. And so everybody loves their field. Everybody enjoys what they're doing. And so it must be a great privilege to be able to work with all those people who are studying and accomplishing and researching so many wonderful things that are so helpful to so many. Well, yes, because a museum, perhaps I will say, is one of the most varied places in terms of a place of work. You know, if you if you think about a bank or a law firm, pretty much everybody's had a similar background or much more similar than here. There are no no two members of the 150 staff here or the hundreds of volunteers or the dozens and dozens of part-time staff that have had the identical background, whether it's in terms of the combination of their, their education and their degrees, if they have them, um, and where they got them and what their experiences have been, why they got interested in nature and science and what they're doing here. It makes for a very um, diverse and, and wonderful variety of, uh, of types of minds and types of passions that, you know, make more than the sum of the parts, which is what an organization needs to be. Well, and, and that's very obvious. You know, sometimes people think of a museum as a museum, and it might be sort of a boring place. 
But I have to say, a science museum, and this science museum in particular, it is so very much alive. And it is, you know, you just need to look around and just not only at the displays, but just at the people and what they're accomplishing and what they're talking about and what they're learning and what they're sharing. And, and it's really, it's anything but boring. It's, it's very exciting and it's on the cutting edge of the future. Well, thank you. Uh, I've been to some pretty boring museums, I have to say. <laughs> Maybe when I was younger, although I, I have favorite memories of, of going to my first museums. And I often ask uh, adult audiences or audiences of any age of and stage of learning, do you have a distinct memory of your first museum? And, and typically a majority of the audience does because uh, it's not like school and it's not just like going out to something. It's museums stay with you. And, and when we think about the origin of the word museum, you know, it comes from the ancient Greek, um, from the muses, the Greek mythology. And the muses were about uh, the, the, the sort of ins inspiration and the reflection and contemplation. And so museums should be those things. Uh, speaking of which, this museum was recently awarded a national medal for museum and library service from First Lady Michelle Obama. Congratulations. What was it like going to the White House to receive that award? Very special. I had had the opportunity of going to a Christmas function. I'd seen the White House decked out for Christmas, which was itself very special. But coming here a year ago on the shoulders of 133 years of, of history of this place, uh, what I want to emphasize is what an honor it was, yes, but to do so uh, on behalf of the countless many who have helped pay for this place and imagine it and build it and fill it and uh, be very pleasing. So for the last 20 years, the federal government, through the Institute of Museum and Library Services, has recognized each year five museums and five libraries, and there are 35,000 museums in the country. So five of 35,000 is a pretty small percentage. Wonderful. And we were one of the five selected this year for oh. outstanding community service. Congratulations. And it's it's wonderful how you bring forward the idea that it wasn't just a recent thing. It was the culmination of years and years of collective effort. And I think that that's really what science is, right? And the more we... Keeps on going. That's right. And, and it's so important. The work that the scientists are doing now builds on the work that the scientists before them did and it builds on the work that the scientists before them did. You know, I think that students might not realize all the science that's around them. And if, you know, they just pay a little bit more attention and really are reflective about it, they can sort of think a little bit more about what's going on around them or underneath them. And I bring that up because you are a geologist. <laughs> I am and I was and I think geologically. So, and, and I would love to talk a little bit about that. Tell me what drew you to geology. Uh, my accent is from England. I didn't notice you had an accent. No, no I didn't I... notice yours either. <laughs> um, so I grew up, uh, I was born actually in the Suez Canal Zone in Egypt. Uh, my uh, father was stationed out there with the Royal Air Force. But oh, I grew okay. up in southern England. Okay. And right next to the English Channel, that strip of water between southern England and France. And uh, literally, uh, the house where I grew up uh, was within sound of the waves crashing on oh, the shore. Beautiful. Below the cliffs of the English Channel. So... You know, England's climate is pretty stormy and rainy, so rivers would flood pretty often, and and cliffs would erode pretty regularly and fall down, and, and new things would be. To it. And I was witness, so I would get on my bike. We hadn't got a car at the time, 
And there was no television or internet or nothing handheld. So what in the world did you do with your time? Oh, I didn't have any difficulty filling it because my bike was my friend, and I often alone or with friends would go down、uh, to the top of the cliff and climb down, and、uh, both look at the wildlife that was in all that rough landscape between the edge of the cliff and the beach, and and walk down river valleys that were carved by rivers that were constantly changing with each big rain. And new fossils would be un- unearthed, so I sort of had a natural、uh, connection with you know、uh, wild lands. It wasn't as wild as as you know as wild can be on the earth, but it was it was nature、uh, in its in its sort of raw form. So、uh, you know that was my beginnings, and it naturally led me to thinking about geology and geomorphology. So geology is the scientific study of the earth, and geomorphology. Is the scientific study of the shape of the land, and both of those. And morph means to change. Morph、right? means to change, and my father was also traveling a lot at sea, and to other parts of the world. So he'd bring back rock samples for me. So you know, we I'd have this growing collection that, that my mother had no space for, but was somehow accommodated, and I just developed this interest. I st- I would copy maps as a child, with with colored pens. This is again before any computers. And so it naturally led me to want to pursue geography, particularly geomorphology, and geology at school and at university. And I had that chance through the help of, of teachers who who thought that they could help me, you know, get to where I my dreams wanted. And that led me into a career that started off with university teaching and research in geology. And then I had that opportunity, as I mentioned,、uh, to get into my first museum. So. Oh, that is just—it's so inspiring, and it's—it's—it's it's really just such a wonderful story. Clearly, you're so passionate about it, and being able to share that with others. What's the craziest thing that has happened during your tenure as a museum director at one place or another, <laughs> whether it's here or one crazy, of the other? Crazy, crazy, funny, or crazy, crazy? Like you know, that's—I've、um, had some amazing experiences for sure. Crazy, amazing. So it was through being at a museum that I got to go dinosaur hunting in the Gobi Desert. Oh, isn't that wonderful? And to be, you know,、uh, camping and and going in jeeps and convoys. Dinosaur fossil hunting dinosaur for those fossil, who are listening. Just like sort of a <laughs> crocodile Dundee or Jurassic Park, you know, and 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 to be. You don't have to chase the fossils quite as fast. <laughs> no, no.、Um, but it was an amazing experience, and you know, you just to think about where you are on the world's map. Right. And there I am, north of the Himalayas, and and you know, we travelled all along the Mongolian Chinese border in a convoy of vehicles, camping and visiting with the cultures. What was that like? Searching for the fossils and with the team, and and I would love to hear more about、yeah. that. I think the students would be really fascinated. You know, there are the, some of the most famous dinosaurs are the big meat eaters, like Tyrannosaurus and Acrocanthrosaurus, which we have here at the museum. But the other, surely the other famous ones are the huge ones that actually ate vegetables and not meat, but they happen to be the biggest, the sauropods, the ones that. You know, was longer、the、as long really as really long, really long tails、yeah. and long necks, and four-legged and little heads. Yes. So,、um, being a reptile and being a vertebrate, we are a vertebrate too, and the dinosaurs inside are just like us. They have a long backbone, and in the upper part of that backbone sticks out a rib cage, and then there's a pelvis onto which two legs attach, and then there's shoulders onto which Two arms extend, and there's a neck, 
which supports the head. It's the same whether you're a Tyrannosaurus or a Brontosaurus or a, or a human uh, animal. And so one day, um, my role there as a geologist was to, once a dinosaur was found or partly found and, and then unearthed, to become a museum exhibit and a research specimen, my role was to try and figure out under what conditions had that dinosaur died. I mean, that's an interesting question. We, we look at dinosaurs in museums and we don't often think about how is it that a huge dinosaur, if we're looking at the real bones, could be preserved? Well, usually the event that killed the dinosaur is the event that buried it. But if I'm going to be a T-Rex and I'm going to kill some little plant-eating dinosaur, there's not going to be much left. Right. Because you're my meal. Right. And I'm going to eat you all up. <laughs> and what I don't want is going to be scavenged by other animals. And maybe the last bits are just going to dry up and, and go into powder under the sun, right? So what, what we're talking about is, is let's instead imagine that a big flood has occurred on the river. And this big dinosaur was crossing it, but it couldn't make it. And we see that in African rivers today. Herds of, of wildebeest cross rivers, and, and a lot of them don't make it. And they end up being washed on down, maybe to, to be food for crocodiles, but some also get buried. And I've seen this in rivers today where animals are buried in sediment. So that's what happened. But this particular dinosaur that I came across, it was a huge, long sauropod. And each of the vertebrae, each of the sections of the neck, were as long as five feet. Oh, my gosh. And there was a string of these that were six vertebrae long. So six times five. This was about a 25-foot long neck. Oh, my gosh. And it was all draped. So I couldn't see the body. I'm not sure that we have a new, given the size of this and the amount of excavation, what was in there. But the piece that happened to be at the surface of the eroding slope, when I was there, uh, turned out to be perfectly sort of aligned to expose to me uh, this string of vertebrae. That was an amazing find. Oh, I would imagine. It must have been so exciting. All right, Dr. Coster. Since this is the walk-in classroom, I have to ask, what is your favorite place to walk? Well, I've had the chance to walk in a lot of pretty special places with my geology. We talked about the Gobi Desert, and I've well, I've had the chance to visit some 80 countries on all all the continents, not Antarctica yet. Yet, so, yet. If you and, were, if you could pluck yourself down anywhere in the world and go for an hour walk, would you be back in the Gobi Desert? So let's just imagine we're up in the coast of Alaska, in a place called Glacier Bay. And I remember being in, at the end of this bay and looking up, uh, it was a beautifully clear day. And from the glacier that was dropping bits of ice into the water at the end of the bay where I was, I could see clearly all the way up to mountains that were over 12,000 feet. And these, these ice, the ice, the snow up there, which, you know, snow upon snow upon snow ends up hardening and becoming ice. And when the ice is on a slope, it starts to flow under gravity. And so probably 20, 10 to 20,000 years when the ice I'm looking at now fell as snow up there. And so I just felt, uh, you know, it was quiet and the only sound was the ice falling and, and crashing into the water. And it was a beautifully clear day and I was just sort of uh, in nature, totally immersed in, in that natural situation. And I'm, you know, I'm remembering it clearly now as I'm telling you about it. So I would say to your listeners, go out and just... You know, listen, listen and look. What take time to watch the leaf fall, 
and watch that flower opening and see where that insect goes. And just take your time and unhurried. Don't be rushed. Just listen and watch nature and you'll be amazed. Oh, and Lynn, thank you so much. It was such a treat to chat with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good luck to all your listeners. Thank you. May you have, may you have success in finding this, the career of your dreams. Pursue it.